When I was a child, I kept getting ear infections because I did not have good drainage in my inner ear. So the doctors put tubes in my ears. I actually had to have them put in three different times. I don't remember the first time because I was very young, probably only about three years old. Although it's a minor procedure, you do have to go under general anesthesia. And when I was older, my mom told me that I was, understandably, as a three-year-old, very scared in the hospital as the doctor strapped me into the gurney to wheel me into the operating room where my parents couldn't go with me. And my parents were there outside trying to reassure me that it was okay. And according to my mom, I finally looked at my dad as they wheeled me into the operating room and cried out, Daddy, why? And my mom said that my dad got really choked up at that. Although, like I said, I don't actually have any memory of it, just from the imagined image of what my mom told me, it really, st it really stuck with me. Because my dad was not somebody who, as I knew him, ever got choked up. Angry, yes, he had a Sicilian temper, but otherwise he had kind of a Roman stoicism about him. I'm sure that many of the parents out there have had something similar where your child needed to have something done for his or her own good, even though you knew that he or she didn't want to do it, and even if your child wasn't able to understand why it was good for them. That's the relationship that God often has to us. St. Paul tells us how inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. We're like a child who doesn't see the good our parents are trying to do for us. To a child, a parent's ways might seem inscrutable. But the one thing that a child knows, or should know, is that their parents love them. In our day, we will, offer, we will often encounter skepticism at the idea of a personal God. We hear that phrase a lot, but what is meant by a personal God? It doesn't mean a God who belongs to us exclusively, but rather a God whom we, or anyone, can have a personal relationship. A God who is not simply a distant watchmaker winding up the gears of the universe. A personal God is one who wants to have a communicating relationship one that brings us into communion with him because he loves us and he desires our salvation. In other words, a God who has a personality that corresponds with ours. One of the things that many people struggle with, many unbelievers, is the idea that if people each believe that they have a personal relationship with God, then it will be chaos because each person can point to that God as justification for anything they want to do. God told me to do it. If God told me to do it, then it's okay. They imagine that a believer sees God as a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. In truth, this is one of the dangers of Reformation theology. Martin Luther, seeking to displace the Catholic Church as the arbiter of divine revelation, asserted that each individual believer possesses within themselves the power to interpret 
and understand the scriptures. He said the Bible is its own interpreter. That was the phrase that launched 10,000 denominations, each claiming to have the true understanding of God. And Luther claimed that in order to properly understand scripture, all the person needed was fear, piety, knowledge, fortitude, mercy, and a cleansed eye through which God may be seen. It's interesting, though, that he took this quote from St. Augustine. The difference is is that St. Augustine said that these qualities are necessary so that a person can understand Scripture as interpreted by the guardian of divine revelation, the Church herself. St. Augustine said himself, I would not have believed the gospel were it not for the Church. That's why the passage from Matthew that we just read shows that the nature of the church, which Christ established, is central to our understanding of the faith. Jesus begins by asking his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they give him the panoply of opinions that circulated about Jesus. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets. But when Jesus asks, Who do you say that I am? Peter responds, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the key point, because from the truth of who Jesus is flows the means by which his authority will be made manifest after he ascends to the Father. His authority will be vested in the church which he established upon Peter. At a minimum, we know two things about the church. One, that the gates of hell will not prevail against her. She will never be completely overtaken by the world. Christ's church will persevere to the end. And two, it will have the keys to the kingdom of heaven so that the church may unlock whatever truth or mystery that God deems it worthy for Christians to know on this earth. And so the church stands as the sign of truth in a marketplace of competing claims and opinions, just as a parent stands as the bedrock of love in a child's world. The church is the instrument through which the truth of God is revealed to us. And just as a parent gives signs of his or her love to their children, the church, by the authority of Christ, gives us the tangible signs of God's love in the sacraments. And it also gives us certain authoritative teachings about faith and morals, about how we are to understand our faith. This is the gift of authority. Because without it, we truly would be like lost children, each of us struggling to answer the question, but who do you say that I am? God knows that the church would disintegrate without this structure of authority. Of course, there are many who recoil at the idea of the church being the arbiter of divine revelation. We have a hard time believing in an institution made up of fallible people. And yes, as persons, bishops, and priests, and popes are quite fallible. 
but that somehow through the Holy Spirit, the Pope and the bishops united with him can be infallible in teaching matters of faith and morals. It is a characteristic of our age to distrust institutions. How many times do we hear something like, but what if the church said white is black and black is white? Would you believe that? There's no easy answer one can give to this kind of doubt. We can only trust in God's promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the lack of trust that's expressed in this kind of doubt is born of fear. Fear of the future, fear of the unknown. But as St. John, the beloved, our our parish patron said, perfect love casts out fear. We have a church that for 2,000 years has taught the truth in matters of faith and morals, sometimes while messing up everything else. We can't paralyze ourselves with fear that somehow, in some way, the church is going to drop the ball of infallibility, no matter how much the world is waiting for it. There's the expression, your well is full, but you fear thirst. Unfortunately, that's the way some live in fear of a collapsing church. Very often, we are presented with something said by the Pope or some other organ of the church, and we are tempted to immediately characterize it as too liberal or too conservative or too old-fashioned or not respectful enough of tradition, whatever it may be. But we need to step back and to realize that there is an inner logic to the faith. The church must balance every statement, every teaching, against a myriad of factors and many different types of political and historical circumstances. And so it's good to remember the old Latin phrase, sentire cum ecclesia, to think with the church. Try, instead of doubting, we should try to see everything the way that the church wants us to see it, not how we want to see it or only from our own circumstances. And if we do so, we'll often be surprised by the truth that we discover. Frankly, it's a good way to approach anything, even outside the church. I had a professor in college who said that the worst thing that ever happened to education was when everyone started talking about critical thinking and critical reading. Critical, 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 everywhere, criticism. Instead, he proposed, shouldn't we try to teach sympathetic reading and sympathetic thinking? It doesn't mean that we don't ask difficult questions or that we blind ourselves to reality. Because thinking with the church does mean really thinking. But it does mean trying to really understand and listen to what the church is trying to say, rather than simply dismissing it through the lenses of our own prejudice. It is the root of the word obedience, obedire. It means to listen attentively, to listen responsibly. And if we do so, we'll see that the church is a bulwark against the kind of radical individualism and subjectivism and relativism and relativism that sometimes characterizes those who reject church authority. But the church does not deny that there is a personal and subjective element to our faith. For example, the church is going to tell you that you should pray. I mean, that is a teaching of the church. 
She will even suggest many true and tried prayers and devotions that have aided the Christian life over the centuries. But she is not going to tell you that you have to pray in a certain way. Similarly, the church is going to tell you that you must obey, of course, the moral commandments and certain other disciplines of the church. But she is not going to deny you the freedom to discern how God is calling you to live out your life within the parameters of those commandments and disciplines. She trusts that each person must find their vocation through an intimate encounter with a personal God. The church will propose, but she will not impose. But she will remind us, sentire cum ecclesia, think with the church.